Hey everyone, and welcome to Off the Record, a show where we talk candidly on practical advice and provide insight on issues across the criminal law landscape. As counsel for the defense, we speak from a position of authority, giving you, our audience, the expert knowledge that you deserve. You'll hear from a variety of hosts with their unique experiences for our discussions, giving you the opportunity to learn something new and with a different point of view. Let's get into it. Welcome to Off the Record. My name is Shannon Dorvalchin. I am general counsel for Imhoff and Associates. And here with me today is my associate, Shannon Lease, who is the managing attorney at Imhoff and Associates. And we are here to discuss one, how wonderful Imhoff and Associates is, and two, the topic of the moment, which is AI and how AI works with the legal profession in various ways, the ethics involved in using AI, how AI can help, how it can hurt, and just a kind of a discussion of how as trial attorneys, we would use AI in a courtroom or to help with cases. Yeah, and I think um, AI is pretty much everywhere and everyone's heard about it now and it's touching pretty much every field and law is no different. Uh, it's basically the simulation of human intelligence by machines to perform tasks that are typically done by people and how this could help, you know, trial attorneys, especially criminal defense lawyers who are working often without the huge law firm support groups that the other civil law firms have is to really help automate routine tasks, scheduling and streamline workflows, which then in turn allows us to spend more time focusing on our clients. There's numerous ways that this can help. Um, kind of already seeing it uh, for the past few years with e-discovery, which allows us to scan documents using specific search terms or parameters uh, significantly faster than just reading through voluminous hard copies. Um, can also assist with legal research, um, conducting more comprehensive research at much faster speeds. And also even legal writing can aid in drafting documents, motions, and briefs. And around the law office, also with document management, AI-driven document management software can store and organize legal files like contracts, case files, notes, and emails. And also with document automation, we can create documents using intelligent templates. All of this cuts down significantly on just kind of busy work that we have to incur around the office that can draw us away from time spent with our clients. Uh, can also do predictive analysis, which would help lawyers anticipate legal outcomes based on historical data. Case strategy formulation, which would assist in evaluating different defense strategies by providing insights into the likely effectiveness of legal arguments based on historical data and case precedents. Um, and even evidence assessment can help to analyze and prioritize evidence, identifying inconsistencies or patterns that might be crucial for building a defense or challenging the prosecution's case. And then we even see this touching on jury selection. The AI algorithms can analyze data re related to potential jurors, helping attorneys make more informed decisions during the jury selection process based on factors like social media and past behavior. There are certainly some challenges and considerations. Uh, ethical, uh, AI uses data that comes from humans to predict, to make predictions and outputs. And therefore, since humans can be biased, AI comes with inherent potential for bias as well. And then certainly data privacy. 
We need to be careful what data AI is able to access. We don't want confidential info to be accessed and used by AI for someone else. And something I'm not sure is it's really being talked about as much right now is the access to justice. I mean, these programs are not going to be cheap. Shannon and I were in a, a conference where they're discussing, I, I can't remember which vendor it was, but just really insane amounts of money to be able to have access to some of these programs. And certainly not all practitioners are going to be able to afford those. And then do we have a difference in how an attorney is able to effectively represent their client if they don't have access to all these powerful tools? And it certainly requires human oversight. Shannon, would you like to talk about the case out in New York? Yes. The attorneys in New York, we don't want to name them as they've already had quite a bit of press on this and don't want to embarrass <laughs> them, certainly. But they had a case come in on a narrow point of law about a client who had said he was injured on an airline, by an airline, on an airplane, one of the metal carts coming down the aisles, hit him in the knee. He wanted to file suit for a personal injury case in New York. And the case started in New York State, and then it was removed from New York State to New York Federal Court. Being that it was a very narrow case of law, area of law, the attorneys decided to use chat GPT to help them with their research and the writing on the case. And they inputted information into the system and then asked it to write a brief for them that they could file. And that brief was on a very important point of law, the statute of limitations, because the airline was arguing now that it was in federal court, the statute of limitations had been blown and the case should be thrown out. So they asked the chat GPT to write this brief. And then when it was done, they asked, is everything correct? Of course, AI program said yes. So they filed this in federal court. The opposing side and the judge attempted to find the cases cited in this brief because they were extremely on point on a very narrow area of law that previously no <laughs> one could find a case on. And they, here they had a dozen out of nowhere. So naturally, that raised their curiosity and they tried to do their due diligence and find those cases. When they were unable... They contacted the attorneys and said, hey, can you file a paper copy of these? We can't seem to locate them. We've tried everything. We can't find them. Can you please file a paper copy? So instead of filing a paper copy of each individual case, they filed a compendium or kind of a summary of each case with the court. And then they were called into court. And at that point, they were sanctioned because that was the second bite at the apple as we attorneys say, they had to correct the fact that they'd used AI and had not actually checked the work because the court and the other side determined that those cases were all fake. They looked real. <laughs> yeah, if you looked at them, they sounded right. It was like Smith v. Delta Airlines and it had a citation on it. It had a summary of the case. It had a, you know various courts. Everything looked right in theory. But what had really happened was the search engine had wanted to satisfy the person searching. So it created something when it couldn't find the answer. The attorneys admitted in court that they were unaware chat GPT or any AI, for that matter, could whole cloth create a case. 
they were stunned. <laughs> the court was not impressed with their answer because they had been given a second chance <laughs> at it and still hadn't corrected it. So that case serves as a warning to the rest of us that one, if it's too good to be true, it probably is for sure in case law. But two, you still have a duty of competence. And under the rules of ethics, that's rule 1.1 of the ABA rules. And pretty much every state, the first rule is be competent, know what you're doing. And then, of course, you have a duty to make sure that when you are using these systems, that you are checking them, making sure that the answers are accurate. And it I mean, we as attorneys know that all you would have had to do was take the citations that this came up with, plug it into Westlaw, Lexis, or even Google, case text, any one of them, and you would have found no response, meaning there was no case. And certainly, if you're going to cite a case of any kind, just so you don't get caught flat-footed in court, you want to make sure you've read the case. Because- If you're just pulling a quote from it and it doesn't say what you think it says, then you will usually have that pointed out in (laughs) very, very clear language by the opposing side. Exactly. Exactly. And there definitely seems to be some hints of it was too good to be true. We really never find cases that are directly on point, especially in something that's such a narrow area of law like that. Yeah, a statute of limitations regarding an airline out of the country moved from New York into the federal court <laughs> with a very specific kind of injury and not one, but 12. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Face probably. over. <laughs> Should have caught their attention. But yeah. The amount of press that they've gotten, I'm pretty sure they will never make that mistake again. And <laughs> right. Not only the embarrassment, but they got an express referral to the New York State Bar for that. So yeah, I yeah. don't think it was the cost savings they thought they were doing by having that right. It definitely didn't pan out in the end. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think in terms of what we have to assist us around the office is definitely useful, ready, up and coming. Um, with regards to some of the the drafting and things like that, I, I do think that there's still a lot to be worked out. Um, and some of the problems, you know, if you look up our incorrect legal predictions, which I think we would have had in this case. And, you know, that is basically where it's based on precedent and, and historical data um, that then provides an inaccurate prediction due to unforeseen case complexities or changes in legal interpretation. Um, and then just other mistakes that can be made in analyzing complex legal documents. I think there's definitely the potential to get all of that ironed out. As of right now, I think, uh, Shannon, our, our jobs are secure. <laughs> uh, we're not getting replaced just yet. And there, there are some other ethical concerns as well. I know that AI, um, for some time now, has been used by courts and probation departments in trying to predict risk assessments and, you know, recidivism rates and things like that. And and for a long time has received a lot of backlash that it's not accurate. And um, I think we do really still need to revisit how that is used in terms of decision-making processes with regards to bail or sentencing recommendations as it can still produce very biased results and continue 
disparities in the criminal justice system. Yes. And also, even before someone ends up entering the system, there are instances where police departments have used DNA with AI to create what they believe was kind of like a mugshot or, you know, a drawing of a suspect. And it's been shown pretty clearly that those images are usually wrong, that DNA and the AI tends to make racially biased decisions. Right, exactly. In Canada, where they had posted, they were so confident in what the AI had produced that they put the picture out on the news and said, this is our guy. And it was a young African-American man and had certain facial features about him. And they weren't even close. Turns out the guy that they were actually looking for was a middle-aged white man. Wow. But they're just using predictive AI. They guessed, well, you know, it's crime. So this is probably who did it, which is, of course, incredibly biased and just so many issues with that. Oh, yeah. So, so dangerous, especially with yeah. a you know, department that has that much power. Yes. And you um, put that photo out there and it, you know, that's causing all sorts of problems. And when you consider the ethics of AI, you have to consider the different rules across the spectrum that say not only should an attorney be competent just in basic legal work, but some states like Florida have even gone a step further with it and said, if an attorney doesn't understand a certain technology, they need to seek out a non-lawyer or somebody with relative expertise to help. But you yeah. can't just say, well, I don't know any better and stand on that. And part of your competence, rule 1.1, you know, under the comments, they say that that includes technology, that a lawyer should be aware of changes in law in its practice, including any benefits or risks associated with relevant technology. So mm -hmm. as this stuff comes into use, you need to be aware that, yeah, I could use it to maybe cut back on billable hours for my client, but how much help is it to get their case thrown out because you relied on a bad case or fake cases and blew a statute? In terms of generative AI, which is one of the three types of AI that they use, you still have to be aware of how it works and how it can help or hurt you. Because the other types of AI are supervised machine learning, unsupervised machine learning, and reinforced learning. So basically, supervised machine learning is a type of AI where the computer seeks and recognizes patterns within predefined data sets. So that's when you put in the case information and you try to have it find other cases like that. And the human expert kind of acts like a guidance counselor of it. Unsupervised machine learning, however, creates the data set. It doesn't seek out and find one. It makes one. So in the case in New York, it couldn't find case law on point, so it created it. And then <laughs> the third type, which is the type that the attorneys were unaware existed, that it would be so excited to return a result, it would create one. And the third type is reinforced learning, which is a type of machine learning that rewards the computer to create correlations. So you have to be aware not only of different risks, but you also have to be aware of what type of AI you're using. Are you using one like Google that just goes out and finds the result? Or are you using something that like chat GPT that's going to create the result if it can't find it? And the unsupervised learning is what can create new and interesting insights 
But lack of guidance, structure, poorly worded terms can all create inaccurate findings. So you have to really be aware that when you place so much importance on accuracy that we as attorneys do, you really have to be cautious when relying on tools that employ purely unsupervised learning techniques. So essentially, if you're just using chat GPT and printing it out and filing it, you're probably going to get in trouble with the court. So for sure. Yeah. And there are other types, you know, that are helpful that are already in use in law quite a bit, like a brief analyzer. You know, they have them in Mm -hmm. various search, like Bloomberg, West, and it will go through and check all your citations for you, make sure that they're still up to date or the other type that check grammar. There are a lot of ways that they're already in use. Yeah. And that cuts down on so much time, too. That's just so helpful. Yes. And if you're trying to help a client by cutting back on costs, those kind of things are great because normally, you know, back dating myself here. As an intern, my <laughs> job was to check citations. Exactly. And yeah, it took a lot of time and I was paid for that time, but it was still a cost that was passed through to clients. Yeah. So yeah. now you can stick it in Westlaw or something and it'll pop it out for you whether or not they're still accurate. So in that way, it's modernizing law and hopefully it's going to save the client some money and make it more accessible to other people. But again, you always have to keep in mind, you still have that duty of confidence and right. the 1.6 duty of confidentiality because uh, chat GPT is open source. So when you yep. type a client's information in there, it becomes public. And yep. even though it would be difficult to track down that one particular item, you still have to be aware as an attorney that you are putting confidential information into this search engine that is now free for the world to see. And in doing so, the rules and the various state statutes regarding confidentiality is still trying to keep up with that and decide, okay, if you put it in this kind of search engine, yes, it's no longer confidential, but what's the reality of somebody actually being able to find it? And until they catch up on that, we're stuck with the old rules, which say, you know, confidentiality, privilege above everything else. Yeah. So when you use that, you have to really be aware of what you're doing. Yeah. I do think, you know, there's a, a big push amongst Westlaw and Lexis. We'll see who comes out with it first, but to really try and perfect AI in terms of having more reliable draft and and things like that. Um, they, you know, the conference that we attended, that was definitely something that we heard a lot about. But again, you know, both of those, Westlaw is expensive, Lexus is expensive, and then how expensive, how much more in addition to a regular subscription versus time being on, would you have to pay to have access to those kinds of tools? So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds in the future. At least 25 states and Puerto Rico and D.C. have introduced artificial intelligence bills. So they are now trying to track the use of AI rather than have it just kind of be there in the background in these government programs with no kind of accountability, like the DNA issue that we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. using it to create mugshots. Now use of that AI is going to have to be public in certain states so that you know 
if a state is using something like facial recognition, and that's how they ended up finding a criminal defendant, that the defense attorneys are able to challenge that because, as we know, AI is not perfect. It is based on human intelligence and, you know, humans are nothing if not flawed. (laughs) So that... Scary. What do you think about the use of it in jury selection? Because it's only recently the courts have even started to allow attorneys to use things like juror social media activity in looking at up the jurors. I really feel like that's something that would play more into civil trials where, you know, they get that information well in advance and actually have time to analyze it. And I'm not sure about your experience here in California, but where I practice in Ohio, We were handed the jury information as basically coming out to take the jury box. We had next to no time whatsoever to really go over those or take a deep delve into it or try and feed it into any kind of program to help us analyze. So I I don't see how that would help in those kind of circumstances unless you're really given that information ahead of time and even have the ability time-wise to go ahead and analyze it. And California, in my experience, whenever I was in trial, we would get it as the jury was called that day. It was whoever showed up downstairs and you would get a list yep. and it was basically it was just by number. So it wasn't mm-hmm. alphabetical order or anything like that. But from what I'm seeing, people are talking about how they're using social media activity and past behaviors and such to help craft their closing arguments to make sure that yeah. even though they may not have it in time to select a jury unless jury selection runs over several days and they can use it when they go home. They're using it just to make sure that they're, whatever points they're hitting are ones that might resonate with the jury or Got one it. specific juror. Because as you know, in criminal, 12 is great, but we really only need one. Exactly. So, <laughs> I'm sure that jurors would be probably surprised to learn that attorneys are now allowed to do that, that we can oh, look yeah. at anything public, but we are not allowed, of course, to use a false name or something to look at their social media. We have to, if we do use it, we have to look under our own names. Another area AI that seems to be coming in would be more of the photographic use. So people generally think of AI, they either think of it as, you know, making those great pictures, it looks like you're riding on a unicorn or whatever, or you know, writing something whole cloth like a magazine article. However, there is kind of an in-between there. And there's another type of generative AI that can create photos and can create types of data sets that you could use in another way in court, like reenactments. So reenactments, especially in in the criminal realm, um, are very, very expensive to use. So if you want to try to show that a certain way that somebody was hit in the back of the head with a hammer or something like that, however an injury was caused, you would currently, you need to go to a firm to satisfy Daubert, which is the standard that you have to meet of any scientific evidence. So even if it's just, it's not going to be used for actual factual basis, it's really just demonstrative evidence, you still have to meet a certain base level of standard. So Daubert and the use of Daubert in creating demonstrative evidence is going to be another big area of law, in in my opinion, because I could see challenging some of these recreations that people are coming up with 
because you don't have, you know, like an engineer from MIT or something reviewing this recreation of a car accident or whatever it is. It's just something that was modeled and put together online that right. you went through and you use these various AI engines and said, oh, look, here, if the car A was going 20 miles an hour and car B was going 25 miles an hour and they hit, this is what it looks like. Right. Well, did that program take into account the age of the road, weather conditions, you know, various factors that an engineer would likely take into account because that's what their training knowledge and experience teaches them to do. So even though you're leveraging AI to offer a service at a lower cost, higher efficiency, and probably more favorable outcome in litigation, there's the chance that you spend that time, money, and effort, and it never makes it in the courtroom in front of a jury because you can't get past Daubert. Do you have some, do you have any thoughts on that, on how an attorney could maybe work around that or use those models in a manner that may be able to get in in a criminal case? No. My thought on it was you could use it for a visual aid in trial, depending on what you were, what you were trying to come up with. I, an example I could use from a case was there was an issue with a the coroner was unable to attend trial and they used a styrofoam skull in place of the victim's head to prove where a gunshot had entered. And if you just saw that one, just looking at it, the styrofoam head, this victim was substantially larger than what this would have been. Also, the coroner that was standing in for the actual coroner was about eight inches shorter. So... <laughs> When you're trying to model, they, he stood up and he tried to use, you know, the shotgun and say, this could only have worked this way. And he was eight inches shorter than the other coroner and he was about <laughs> a foot shorter than the victim. So that real world test was useless. But if you yeah. at the time could have used AI and modeled that and shown, well, okay, the victim's wingspan or arm reach is this long and the defendants is this long, then it could have worked like that. That, yeah, it's an extreme example, but that information could have changed the jury's mind because they'd already came back after murder down to manslaughter. And that might have taken that out entirely because the whole argument was that they acted in self-defense. They didn't pull the trigger. The other person could. So it was whether or not that person was tall enough to make that happen. Right. So... Those kind of things, using a very powerful visual aid like that in trial could have swayed that case. Yeah, absolutely. So I I can see that sort of thing being used in court much more often as we get past any of the Daubert issues with it. And if you are able to show where you pulled the information from, then I believe courts might be more willing to let it in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... I'm I'm sure that you would agree that no matter how much AI stuff you come up with, none of it ever replaces the human component in law and dealing with clients one-on-one, thing that our attorneys are great at. All of our attorneys in court, you can definitely speak to that. That human connection is one of the reasons why our firm is amazing and clients really do like our attorneys is because they have the compassion that you need in this field and they try to really help 
clients any way they can within, of course, the bounds of law. But they do everything they can to try to help clients and help their families through these tough times. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Off the Record. Don't forget to share and also subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Want to ask a question on a future episode? We'd love to hear from you. So email us at offtherecordpodcast at criminalattorney.com. Follow us on Instagram at Imhoff Associates or send us a tweet at Criminal News. Until next time, the defense rests.